I hope uh, if you're local and you're just checking us out that you'll come and visit us in person to see what we're like. I think you'll like us if you do. So we welcome you to come to one of our services. Uh, we are rejoining our journey through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus this weekend after a one-week break for Mother's Day. And so uh, let me just give you a quick review because what we are going to see this morning is the conclusion of a very straightforward, a very serious, and a very sobering conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders. When we opened up our Bibles uh, a few weeks ago to Matthew chapter 21, uh, we began to see events that would ultimately culminate in the cross. We saw the triumphal entry followed by Jesus clearing and cleansing the temple followed by Jesus cursing a fig tree. There was a great lesson to learn from that. Followed by Jesus being in the temple where the religious leaders came and confronted him and demanded that he tell them by what authority he does the things that he does. And that's where we left off. Now, I told you that one of the nuances of Matthew's gospel is he writes about these last events in Jesus' life like they all happened on the same day, but they did not. And when you look at all the Gospels and you see his life from a harmony of the Gospels, you know that when you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, that it's Wednesday of the final week of Jesus' life. And so he's got two days, two days until he dies. And so think about this. Think about this for, with me for just a moment. Jesus, knowing that he only has two days to live, is not going to fool around with these religious leaders when they confront him in the temple. He's in the temple, this very same temple that he has cleaned he has cleansed and cleared the day before. When he's teaching and preaching in the temple, they confront him and demand to know where he gets the authority to do the things that he does. He is not going to fool around with them. And so they confronted him, but he turns the table on them and he confronts them right back. First of all, he confronts their hypocrisy. We don't have time to talk about that. We shared about that in a message a few weeks ago. That's in verses 23 through 27. And second, he confronts them by declaring the judgment of God. That's what makes this such a serious and a sobering passage of Scripture. Jesus talks to these religious leaders about the judgment of God, and he does it by sharing three parables, three parables. Remember, a parable is an illustration. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabole in the original language, which means the placing of one thing beside another thing. And so Jesus places a spiritual truth alongside a physical truth that the people, his hearers, can understand to make his point. And the last time we opened up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about the first two parables. There, there's a parable of the two sons. There's the parable of the tenants. And this weekend, we're looking at that third and final parable, which is the parable of the wedding banquet. And so, this is so important, we need to dive right in. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 22 and you're able, if you're not, that's okay. But if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest, again, we are so thankful to have you here in our service this weekend. Uh, this might seem odd, but we do it every week, virtually every week. We always make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and because we love and respect God's Word, we stand in honor of it when we read. You follow along as I read Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This is the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again. Note that again. This is the third of three parables. Again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always asked for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. I was talking this past week on two different occasions, first to my son Andrew and second to our high school pastor, Matt Pineda, about the fact that this is the 13th week in a row that I've been in the pulpit here at Mount Pleasant which, I mean, I know I'm the preacher. That's part of my job, a big part of my job. But having four services on the weekend, uh, it's unusual for me to preach this many weeks in a row, but circumstances have just kind of created that need. Normally, after about eight weeks, it's best for you and for me if I take a weekend off and let somebody else fill the pulpit. And so I was talking about that to them because I'm going to need to be out of the pulpit a few times in the coming weeks, and I need them to be ready to preach, which is good news for them because they both love to preach and they both are good at it. But the bad side of that, the bad news is, friends, we are in a portion of Matthew's gospel where there are some really difficult passages of Scripture. There's some very difficult texts. And honestly, I can't think of any other way to describe this or to say it. Sometimes it's burdensome to preach those passages. It's burdensome. They require a tremendous amount of study and a tremendous amount of time to figure out how to make them practical and applicable to our lives today, and it's burdensome. But this is what we do. This is, this is who we are here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. I was reading a blog from a preacher uh, or a preaching consultant this last week, and in the blog he said that you should never have a series, a sermon series in your church that lasts more than four to six weeks. This is message number 72 from the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason why he says you should never have a series that lasts more than four to six weeks is because your people will get bored. Well, you know what I think? I think a lot of preachers think or are worried that the Bible is going to be boring to the people that they're preaching to. But I'm going to tell you something from my heart. The Bible is not boring to me. I hope somebody should say amen to that. The Bible has never been boring to me, never at all. But I think a lot of people are afraid that it is, and as a result, you've got a lot of preachers, and I'm not trying to be hard on preachers today, but you've got a lot of preachers who, when they come to the pulpit, try to figure out how they can be clever in the delivery of the message of God's Word when what they really need to focus on is simply being clear, being clear. And that's what's on my heart this morning because this is a serious and a sobering passage of Scripture, and I want to be clear. If I can go home after the 1130 service, knowing that I have been clear in what I've said, then I'll have a clear conscience and I can enjoy the rest of my day. And I hope and pray that that's what happens. Uh, let's talk about this parable for a little while. I know you notice in your insert there's no outline. I don't have an outline for the message. I have three application points I'm going to make at the end, but I just want to spend some time talking about this parable. More than anything else, we need to understand that this wedding banquet that 
Jesus is describing is the celebration to end all celebrations. It was greater than anything you and I could ever imagine. And I say that because in this story, we have a king who was celebrating his son. Forget about the wedding. The king is celebrating his son. And so this would be no ordinary celebration. One of the first things that I noticed when I read this text is that five different times in the text, the words wedding banquet or banquet are used. So I looked at, at that in the original language of the New Testament, and both, both words, whether it's wedding banquet or just the singular banquet is used, they both come from the same word in the original language. It's the Greek word gamos, which is not a particularly fascinating word, but here's what was interesting about that word study. Sometimes here in Jesus' parable, that word gamos is used in a singular form, and sometimes it's used in a plural form. How are we to understand that? Well, we understand that because weddings in Jesus' day were different, were far different from weddings that you and I are familiar with today. First of all, weddings in Jesus' day lasted seven days. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being the father of the bride paying for a wedding that lasts for seven days? And my daughter Trish is getting married in August, and I'm telling you, I, that would just about wreck me, a seven-day wedding. Seven days. They started with breakfast on the first day, and they culminated with a great banquet, a great wedding banquet on the seventh day. And after the wedding banquet was over, the groom would take his bride home where they would consummate their marriage. And so the singular use of the word gamos is a reference to the whole period, that seven-day period, while the plural reference would be focused on one of the particular events, and in Jesus' story, it's the final event, the wedding banquet. Here's the bottom line. I can't find strong enough words to tell you how spectacular, how grand, and how splendid this celebration was. This was the celebration to end all celebrations. This was a really big deal. Everybody understand that? Say yes. This was a big deal. Now, look at verse 3. Jesus said about the king, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Well, what that means to us, friends, and here's another thing we have to understand from a cultural standpoint, is that there were guests who had been pre-invited to this wedding, okay? Think about that for a moment. There were pre-invited guests, and there's a practical reason why. If you were going to have a wedding banquet in Jesus' day, then you would have to send out a notice to all the people you're going to invite ahead of time and basically tell them, we're going to have a wedding banquet, and it's going to be in this general period of time. You be ready. Because in Jesus' day... There was no refrigeration. In Jesus' day, there weren't 24-hour supermarkets. In Jesus' day, there wasn't fast food. In Jesus' day, when you're going to throw a wedding celebration or a banquet that large, it was going to take a lot of time. And when it was done, you needed to have the wedding celebration right then. You needed to uh, make sure that the food didn't spoil, the cattle that had been butchered, the oxen that had been prepared. It would only last for a certain amount of time. And so you didn't send out save the date cards in Jesus' day for weddings, you send out, send them, save the month cards, save this six-week period of time. I can't tell you exactly when it's going to be, but my servants will show, you, show up and tell you, it's time to come, and then you come. And that worked in Jesus' day because in Jesus' day, people weren't like us today. They weren't dominated by their calendars and their phones and their schedules and their to-do lists, and they were able to stop what they were doing at a moment's notice and go to a wedding banquet. And so that's the idea 
behind verse 3 when it says that the king sent the servants out to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But verse 3 says they refused to come. Those people who had been pre-invited refused to come. Verses 4 through 6 get a little bit more specific. Look back there. It says, <clears throat> then he sent some more servants and said, <clears throat> tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Verse 6, the rest seized the servants, mistreated and killed them. What a response. Can you even imagine that? Uh, can, you, can you imagine uh, uh, being pre-invited to a celebration that was going to be unlike any celebration you'd ever been to before? I mean, in the minds and the, of the listeners of this parable, when Jesus started talking about a king, that was the highest level person you could ever imagine. You couldn't even imagine anybody who would, had more authority and more power than a king, and he's throwing a celebration for his son, and you were pre-invited. You were going to get to be a part of this incredible celebration. And yet, when the time came and the servant showed up and say and said, let's go to the wedding banquet. Some just said, eh, I got better things to do. I'm just going to go to work today. Others mistreated the servants. I don't know exactly what that means. I looked at the word in the original language, and it just literally translated means to act shamefully toward them. They mistreated the servants, or worse, they killed them. It's a pretty incredible story. Now, I'm going to push the pause button for a moment because... I'm sure that many of you, if not most of you, have already figured out that in Jesus' story, which, remember, is an illustration, in Jesus' story, the king represents God. And since the king represents God, the son that he is celebrating represents his one and only unique son, Jesus. And so Jesus is telling a parable about a time when God extends an invitation for people to come and celebrate his son, Jesus. But that leaves this question. Who were these pre-invited guests? Who were the pre-invited guests that refused to come? Well, there's only one answer, and that is the Jews. By virtue of the covenant relationship they have with God, that's the only possible answer. The pre-invited guests who refused to come were the Jews. They had a covenant relationship with God. That covenant began all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, we talked about this recently when God tapped a man named Abram. We know him better as Abraham on the shoulder. And he basically said to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And that was God's first step in creating the nation of Israel and creating the Jewish people that were going to be a, a, a special people all to God, a special people to his own because God wanted them to be his witnesses in the world. He wanted to have a special relationship with them so that they could be his witnesses in the world to the reality of who he was. But the covenant relationship they had with God didn't end there because it was solidified later on after Moses led the Egyptian, or excuse me, the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He solidified that covenant with them and basically said this to them. This is the basics of the covenant. Listen, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bless you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And here's what you need to do. You need to obey me. And this is the kind of relationship the Jewish people had with God the nation of Israel. And by virtue of that covenant relationship, they are the pre-invited guests in Jesus' story who refuse to come. 
The servants of the king showed up and said, it's time for the wedding banquet. And their response is probably best described by John's words in John chapter 1 and verse 11 when he said, and he's writing about Jesus, he said, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The Jews rejected Jesus. Some were indifferent. They just didn't care. Some were downright hostile. Now, remember who Jesus is telling this story to. He's telling this story primarily to the Jewish religious leaders. And here's the deal. They were already angry with him, but they're growing more and more angry with every passing moment because they know he's talking about them. And this story is a serious indictment on them and how far they are from God. They're religious, but they're a long way from God because they refuse to acknowledge and celebrate Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God. How many of you know that you can be religious and be a long way from God at the same time? We talked about that a lot through the Gospel of Matthew, especially in the early chapters, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the difference between being religious and being righteous. Being religious is just focused on going through the motions. Being religious is just focused on outward activity where righteousness begins and flows from the heart. And so these men were religious, but they weren't righteous. They were religious, but they were a long way from God because they refused to recognize, honor, and celebrate Jesus as God's son. Again, some because of indifference, they just didn't care, and some because of outright open hostility. But here's an interesting thing in Jesus' story. Whether you reject Jesus because of indifference or whether you reject Jesus because of hostility, the result for you is going to be the same. Look back at verse 7. Because this was the response of the king after he learned that some refused to come and some mistreated and killed the servants who brought the invitation. It says the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I don't think that requires any explanation. And it would seem like the parable, the story might end at that point. But it doesn't because the king still needs to throw a banquet. He still needs to throw a party. He's got all of this prepared. He needs some guests. And so what the king does is he tells his servants to go out and invite anyone they can find, which is exactly what they did. Look back at verses 8 through 10 just as a reference. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone, everyone say anyone, anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And you know what this is, friends? This is a great description of God calling an, a new people made up of both Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. This is a great description of God calling a new people who would ultimately become his church. And so this is a great description of all of us, all of us, that God has invited to be a part of the celebration of his son. And so now there are guests at the wedding banquet, and I love this. They run the gamut when it comes to diversity because the, the Bible says here literally in verse 10, both good and bad. And again, you know who that describes? All of us, both good and bad, because we all have our own stories. We've all made our own mistakes. And the only thing that we have in common, all of us, is the fact that we're not perfect, not one of us. This is all of us. And then you come to the most unusual part of the story. It's verses 11 through 14. Look back there for a moment. 
But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. How are we to understand that? Well, it's not difficult. And again, let's go back and understand it from a cultural standpoint. In Jesus' day, in that culture, a, a wedding banquet, especially something this spectacular, a royal wedding banquet, one that was thrown by the king to honor his son, would have been so elaborate that everyone from the bridal party all the way down to the lowliest guest would be expected to wear their very best clothes, their wedding clothes. And this was such a big, culturally, big deal culturally speaking that if you had somebody who was maybe poor and lowly and couldn't afford good clothes, couldn't afford what would be described as wedding clothes, then it was the responsibility of the one throwing the wedding, in this case the king, to provide clothes for that person so that they could attend. You follow me? And so for someone to show up wearing their old ragged clothes, not dressed in the celebratory manner that they needed to be dressed for a wedding would mean that for whatever reason they refused to wear their wedding clothes or they refused to wear the clothes that had been provided for them. And so understanding that, if we think about this from a spiritual standpoint, then this man represents someone who wanted to be a part of the celebration but wanted to be part of the celebration on his own terms. And that's why Jesus says the king responded the way that he did. Remember, the king in this story represents God. The son represents Jesus. And so really the application on a practical level is God is describing a time when he honors his son, but the only way that you can come and be a part of the celebration is to come on God's terms. That means the only way you can come and be a part of the celebration is to come clothed with the righteousness of God. And the only way you can receive the righteousness of God is to accept Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Look at these words on the screen from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul describes what that looks like here in this verse. Read it with me. Let me hear your voices. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who? Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So, because of what he did... We would have the opportunity in him to be the righteousness of God, to have the opportunity to be in him righteous ourselves, to receive his righteousness. Look at it in the Living Bible, the way it's written in the Living Bible. This is a paraphrase of the New Testament. Read this with me. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness, righteousness, into us. Listen, here's the bottom line. You know what? You will never, you will never, I will never, none of us will ever be able to be a part of this celebration that God has invited us to, to wearing our own clothes of self-righteousness because our self-righteousness will never be enough. No matter how good we are, no matter how many good things we've done in our lives, no matter how honest, upright, moral, benevolent, generous, 
whatever you might want to say, we, no matter how much we've done or how much we've been, we will never be enough on our own. The only way we can be a part of the celebration that God is throwing to honor his son Jesus is to surrender our lives to Jesus so that we're clothed in his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. That's the only way you and I will ever have a relationship with God. And so if you come to him on your own, you come to him wearing your own righteousness, then you're going to receive the same treatment that this man received at the wedding banquet. Well, I'm going to stop right there. There's so much more I could say about this. I could probably preach four weeks on this one parable, but I need to make some application points. I hope that gave you an explanation of what's happening here. But... What does it mean to us on a personal level? I've got three things, and I'm going to do them quickly. The first one is this, and, and, and really, they're not new things. They're just things that need to be reinforced. There's more than one way to miss God's call. Write that down somewhere. There's more than one way to miss out on the celebration that God is throwing to honor his son. There's more than one way to miss out on this wedding banquet. In our story, there were three groups of people who missed God's call. First of all, there were people who were indifferent. In other words, they just had no interest. They just didn't care. And that describes a lot of people in the world today. There are a lot of people who don't ever hear the invitation of God because they don't even care enough to listen. They're more interested in themselves. They're more interested in the pursuit of the world. They're so selfishly preoccupied with the temporal, frivolous things of life that they have absolutely no interest in the things of God. And I bet every one of us here today knows somebody like that. They just don't care. No interest in spiritual things at all. Too consumed by the world and too consumed by themselves. Second, there were those who were hostile. And sadly, that describes a growing number of people in the world today. I don't have the time to explain that in detail. I'm not sure I can explain that in detail beyond the fact that the world that we live in today is full of people who don't want to acknowledge or answer to any kind of absolute authority or any kind of absolute truth. And so when God comes along with his message of truth, the reaction is hostility. Because any kind of restriction to somebody's personal choices, any restriction given to somebody's personal lifestyle pursuits or choices is not just rejected, it's rejected with hostility. Even though God's interest for all of us is always the same, he just wants the best for us. And when God says no or when God says don't, what he's doing is he's trying to protect us. When God says don't do something, what he's saying is don't hurt yourself. It might seem like the thing to do in the moment. It might seem like the thing that you desire in the moment. But God is saying, listen, I know better than you. Don't do that. I'm protecting you. And then there was the one man who wanted to be a part of what God was doing on his own terms. Let me tell you something, friends. One of the saddest realities of my life as a pastor is the number of people I have met over the years in every church that I have served who have been attracted to God, who have been attracted to Jesus, attracted to the message of Jesus, but simply could not bring themselves to the point where they could admit that they were not good enough on their own to be right with God, and the idea of complete surrender to Christ in order to have a relationship with God was too difficult for them to bear. And so even though they came and were attracted, even though they wanted to be a part over the course of time, eventually they just drifted away because they couldn't accept the gospel message. They couldn't accept the terms of God. 
Too many people want to follow Christ when he fits into their schedule. And Christ says, you follow me first. Jesus never, you read through the Gospels, how many times did people walk away from Jesus and he let them walk away? And what you never read in the Gospels is Jesus allowing someone else to set the terms by which they would follow him. He set the terms because Jesus knows if you let somebody else set the terms by which they follow you, that eventually they'll set the terms by which they leave. And Jesus never did that. And let me just add this one thing because I'm in, I'm revved up. <laughs> and I apologize if it sounds too harsh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't assume that just because you're here this morning, you're not in that third group. You're not in the group of that man who was thrown out of the wedding banquet because he tried to come on his own terms. Don't assume just because you're listening to me online that you're not in that third group. You might not be indifferent to Christ. You might not be hostile. But if you're trying to follow God, if you're trying to follow Jesus, if you're trying to be a part of what God offers on your own terms, it's not going to work. Jesus demands everything. That's clear in the scriptures. The second thing that stands out, and we love this, is that God's call is not based on your past. I love, I love what verses 9 and 10 said. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. You know, that's, that's who we are, friends. I mean, let's just be honest about that. That's who we are. We're both, we're, we're, we're the good and the bad. This is the church. This is the reality of all of our lives. It's a cliche, but it's true. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And when we unlock the door on the weekend, we don't say only holy people are welcome here or only righteous people are welcome here or only perfect people are welcome here. We say everyone is welcome here, right? Everyone. At least that's the way it should be. That's something we should celebrate. And that's the attitude that needs to be in our hearts. You don't have to water down your church to make it a place where everyone is welcome. You just have to have love in your heart and acceptance in your heart. So it doesn't matter who someone is or where they've been or what they've done or what they look like or how different they may be from you. Everyone is welcome, both the good and the bad. And there are a whole lot more bad among us than there are good. The third thing that stands out, and we can prepare for our response song is your response to God's call determines your future. And so let me just make this really simple. I got four minutes left. I'm going to make this really simple. If you're here this morning in person or listening to me online and you don't know for sure that your life is right with God, I mean you don't know that for sure because the Bible says you can know that for sure. But if you don't know for sure that your life is right with God, if you don't know for sure that you are a Christian, then you've got a decision that you need to make today because God has invited you He's inviting you right now to come and celebrate his son. And you do that when you come to his son and you give him your heart. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to miss God's purposes for my life any longer. I'm not going to be the master of my own life any longer. I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And it doesn't matter. Again, your past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. 
If you do that today, your life can be made brand new because Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 and said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And then he literally says, the old is gone, the new has come. You've got a decision to make today. But it's not just people who might be here or listening to me who don't know for sure that their life is right with God who has a decision to make today. The rest of us may have a decision to make as well. I look across this room and I see a lot of people who are probably just like me. And here's what I mean by that. You've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a Christian for over 50 years. But the truth is, if we were honest, some are dangerously close to becoming like that man at the wedding banquet who was not wearing wedding clothes because you stopped growing or you've stopped obeying God in certain areas of your life. You've started to do your own thing, and God has not brought any consequence into your life. And so you think, okay, this is okay. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to obey God in here and there and here. But in this area of life, I'm going to do what I want. Or you've drifted into your own version of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you do that, again, when it's convenient for you. But it's not something that you do every single day, 24 hours a day. He's not the priority of your life. You've got a decision to make as well. Maybe today is the day you renew your commitment. Maybe today is the day you're honest about where you have slipped to in your life of faith. And today, you say, God, I ask for your forgiveness. I repent and I turn around and I don't want to miss a purpose for my life any longer. But whatever category we might be in today, here's the last thing that I want to leave you with. What God has offered to you, the invitation that God has extended to you, the life that he wants to make available to you is greater than anything you could ever imagine or ever experience on your own. And everyone, everyone has been invited. 